Welcome to the Northwood Baptist Church Podcast. This is Tommy Metter, lead pastor of Northwood Baptist in North Charleston, South Carolina, and I'm so thankful that you've taken the time to listen to the following message. If you'd like to learn more about our church, go to northwoodbaptist.com. And if you like what you hear, leave us a review and subscribe to our podcast so you can have new content delivered to your device every single week. I hope the following message blesses you and helps you connect faith to life. So if you're uh, new to Northwood, bear in mind I'm the fifth string preacher today. Pastor Tommy, as mentioned, is in Cambodia, and um, Randy takes care of a million things around this church, and he's doing a great job of pouring into the college students, and Pastor Trey, uh, he's been busy this week playing with uh, creepy crawly creatures and racing his scooter, and then there's uh, Pastor Logan, he's been busy uh, growing a beard. And reading about 20 books a week, the dude's super smart, right? And then there's Jared. I don't even know if uh, Jared preaches, but uh, we know from the Indonesian mission trip uh, presentation last week, the guy handles snakes. No one wants a snake handler up here preaching. So you're stuck with me, okay? Now, the one thing you need to know about me is this. In one month, I'm going to be 50 years old. So... In addition to being the student pastor here at the church, um, I also work as a hospice chaplain with Roper Hospice. And every now and then, some of the uh, older ladies that I interact with say, you know, you look so young. Now I want you all to come in real close. (laughs) To be 50 and to be told that you look young is a whole lot better than actually being young, but people telling you you look old as dirt. If you have your Bibles, please turn to Acts chapter 17 and verse 1. We're going to read verses 1 through 15. Acts 17 verses 1 through 15. If you don't have a Bible, we have some Bibles in the chair in front of you. Um, Acts is easy to find. It's the fifth book of the New Testament. You have Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, and then Acts. And when you find your place in Acts... Uh, I invite you to stand in the honor of reading God's word. Acts 17. Now when they had traveled through Epiphanes and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica, where there was a synagogue of the Jews. And according to Paul's custom, he went to them. And for three Sabbaths, he reasoned with them from the scriptures explaining and giving evidence that Christ had to suffer and rise again from the dead, and saying, this Jesus, whom I'm proclaiming to you, is the Christ. And some of them were persuaded in joining Paul and Silas, along with a great multitude of the God-fearing Greeks and number of the leading women. But the Jews, becoming jealous and taking some of the wicked men from the marketplace, formed a mob and set the city in an uproar. And coming upon the house of Jason, they were seeking to bring them out to the people. And when they did not find them, they began dragging Jason and some of the brethren before the city authorities, shouting, These men who have upset the world, they have come here also. And Jason has welcomed them. And they all act all contrary to the decrees of Caesar, saying that there is another king, Jesus. And they stirred up the crowd and the city authorities who heard these things. And when they had received a pledge from Jason and the others, 
they released them. And the brethren immediately sent Paul and Silas away by night to Berea. And when they had arrived, they went into the synagogue of the Jews. Now these were more noble-minded than those in Thessalonica, for they received the word of God with great eagerness, examining the scriptures daily to see if these things were so. Many of them, therefore, believed, along with a number of prominent Greek women and men. But when the Jews of Thessalonica found out that the word of God had been proclaimed by Paul and Berea also, they came there likewise, agitating and stirring up the crowds. Then they immediately sent the brethren, um, excuse me, then immediately the brethren sent Paul out to go as far as the sea, and Silas and Timothy remained there. Now those who conducted Paul brought him as far as Athens, and receiving a command from Silas and Timothy to come to him as soon as possible, they departed. And you may be seated. So to kind of catch you up to speed, we're in the midst of a series from the book of Acts called Go in the Power of the Word. This comes from the last words of Jesus before he ascended to heaven to his disciples as recorded in Acts way. Acts 1.8, and you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, even to the remotest parts of the earth. And what Luke does through the um, book of Acts is he records the expansion of Christianity in the early days from a handful of primarily Jewish believers to a worldwide movement. Early on in the book of Acts, God is primarily working through Peter, but ultimately the gospel reaches uh, Antioch and some Gentiles. And then um, the second half of the book of Acts, we see God kind of focusing through Paul and um, the gospel expands. In recent weeks, we've talked about the first missionary journey where Paul and Barnabas, they went and they took the gospel to Asia Minor. Then we had the Jerusalem Council. And then last week, we talked about the beginning of the second missionary journey. Paul and Barnabas split up, but Paul picks up Silas and Timothy, and they take the gospel to Europe. And uh, they were in Philippi. And then what we just read today is the gospel expands to Thessalonica. And in Thessalonica, Paul goes to a synagogue and says, hey, Jesus is the Jewish Messiah. And lots of people end up accepting Christ as their Lord and Savior. Well, then some of the Jews become very jealous of this. They stir up the crowds. You know what I love what they said? These men who have turned the world upside down are here. See, when you carry the gospel to people, you turn the world upside down. You cause an aftershock. See, when you bring Christ to a person and they accept accept the Lord, it changes their life. Then it'll change their marriage. It'll change their family. It'll change their neighborhood. And if enough people get saved, it will change a state and a nation. Hey, guys, go vote. Fine. Uh, You know, participate in the political process. But if you think government is the answer to our problems, you're sadly mistaken. What we need is the gospel of Jesus Christ. Well, Paul and Silas and his buddies, they got run out of town. And then they went to Berea. And I love what it says about the Bereans. They examined the scriptures daily. They were noble-minded. And they too accepted Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior. But the same folks who caused trouble in Thessalonica, they came to Berea and caused some more trouble. Silas and Timothy ended up staying in Berea. And Paul went to Athens. Now this is where Pastor Tommy got real excited when he heard that 
Paul went to Athens. He was thinking, hey, he went between the hedges, watched the Georgia Bulldogs play, ate a bunch of Chick-fil-A over in uh, uh, Athens. Not at Athens. Athens, Greece. The birthplace of Western democracy. The birthplace of Western medicine. Where you had all these ancient philosophers. Um, Socrates, Plato, Aristotle. Um, where, where you had Zeno and Epicurus. All these uh, people where you had the Parthenon and the uh, Acropolis. This is where Paul ended up. Now, in the 4th century BC, Athens was at its zenith. By the time Paul gets here, it's a conquered city by Rome, but it had special status because the, the Romans loved all things Greek, loved the culture, loved the language, and, and everything else. Now, when Paul is in Athens, what we're going to focus on today is simply this. How to help people who don't know God know God. How to help people who don't know God know Him. Please pray with me. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you so much that Paul and his buddies had a passion for sharing the truth of Christ. And thank you that today, over 2,000 years later, our lives have been changed. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. Now, a lot of you know that last week our Tracy was involved in a pretty serious car accident in eastern North Carolina. Her car careened off the road. It, it uh, flipped over several times. And um, she just got out of the hospital last night, had several broken bones. Please continue to pray for her. But that evening, last, last Friday night, some good old boys from North Carolina were driving their trucks. And they saw the accident happen. And they stopped. And they got out of their trucks. And they went down the embankment. And they took out flashlights. And they searched for Tracy. They searched for her friend. And they took them to safety and waited till EMS got there so they could get healing for their broken bones. There are a lot of people out there today that are spiraling out of control with their lives. Their lives are a spiritual wreck. They have given themselves to things which will never satisfy. And they have no hope and they have no peace. They are broken and they are hurting. And like those good old boys did, we have that same opportunity if we're believers in Jesus Christ to simply stop, to see what happened, to take a risk, to make the effort and to take the light of Christ to people who are hurting and broken and bring them to the one that can bring healing to their lives. Are you willing to do it? So there's going to be several applications today. The first three applications are going to be for believers. If you already know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. How to help people who don't know God know Him. But then the last two applications will be for people who don't already know Christ as Savior. There'll be a couple applications for you at the end. So let's look at the first application here. And that will simply to be to see people. To see people. Look at uh, verse 16 in chapter 17. Now while Paul was waiting for them at Athens, his spirit was being provoked within him because he was beholding the city full of idols. 
Paul wasn't just a tourist in the great Athens. He saw what was around him. He saw temples. He saw idols. He saw statues, shrines all over the place dedicated to false gods. It was said of Athens that they were more gods than there were people. There, he might have seen the great um, dedication to Minerva over 40 feet tall, to, to Zeus, to Athena. He saw all of this and he said, this is crazy. People are worshiping what they have created with their own hands. They are worshiping idols that can never help them. And it broke his heart that the true God was not getting the honor and the glory and the worship that he deserved. But it also broke his heart because he realized that if these people died and did not know Christ, they would go to hell. He saw those people. And I ask you a question. If you're saved in this room today, do you see that there are people out there who are worshiping idols? Oh, we don't worship statues anymore. But we may worship our occupation. We may worship money, fame, prestige, pleasure. We give our things. People give them things to stuff that will never satisfy them. Does that not break your heart that God is not getting the worship that he deserves? Does it bother you that there are people around you that you go to school with, that you work with, that are in your neighborhood that don't know Christ, and if they were to die, they would spend an eternity in hell? Does that bother you? Do you see these people? Because if you're going to help someone, you need to see them. Those good old boys, they saw the accident. Then they could do something about it. Before we need help people, we have to see them. The second thing, though, is we need to feel. We need to feel. We need to feel provoked to action. It says, now, while Paul was waiting for them at Athens, his spirit was being provoked within him. He saw all the idols, and he was provoked. It means he was moved, he was stirred to action. It's where we get the, uh, the English word seizure uh, or, or, or spasm. He just had to do something about it. And that was kind of the pattern of his life. Uh, he says, woe is me if I don't preach the gospel elsewhere in Scripture. He said the love of Christ compelled him. He just felt like he needed to do something. He had to do something. And we need to get to that same place. I mean, sometimes in life, we just need to get provoked. And that's just the way it is. Okay, so last Christmas, I was in Hendersonville, North Carolina on Christmas Eve. And I was about 35 pounds heavier than I am now. And I had ate yummy food all day long and all day long. And it was really good. And I had some macaroni dish that was like, you know, 8,000 calories. And afterwards, I was just thinking, I am absolutely miserable as a human being. I'm a, I'm a big blob and I need to do something about this. I was provoked to action. Downtown Charleston, there's a, a courthouse dedicated to Judge Waitus Waring. He was just, a, you know, an umpteenth generation Charlestonian at one point. He didn't care about civil rights. But when he presided over the case of the blinding of Isaac Woodard, uh, an army, a black army veteran that was uh, uh, gouged in the eyes by some small town uh, 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 mob, and, and he was, the, the, the people who did that to Isaac Woodard were, got off by an all-white jury, were acquitted. It provoked him to do something about civil rights. In the same way, we need to be provoked to action to share Christ. We all know if we're a believer, we're supposed to do this. I mean, this is our marching orders, right? Do we ever do it? 
90% of believers, we're told, never share their faith. What is it going to do to provoke you to action? Now, I think we need to be provoked over and over and over, to tell you the truth, on a daily basis. Just some suggestions to provoke you to action, to share Christ with people, to help people who don't know God know him. First of all, read the Bible on a daily basis. I know that sounds very Sunday school, right? But you know what we do when we read the Bible? Remember, we're noble-minded. We are getting the mind of Christ. We're finding out who God is, who we are, who the lost are, and what our mission is. It reminds us on a daily basis. So read the scriptures daily. Also pray daily. Yeah, another no duh, right? But when we pray, it's not just about asking God for stuff. It's about us getting the heart of God, about him changing our heart, about us engaging in his priorities and his mission. So pray on a daily basis. Can I make another suggestion? Go on a mission trip. Take a risk. See what God is doing around the world in this country and in foreign countries. It'll stir your heart to action. Out in the lobby, there are some cards to pray for missionaries. It's one thing, dear God, help all the missionaries of the world. But it's something else to actually pray for a specific missionary and what is going on in their life. It will provoke you to action. Uh, I have a couple of websites here. Uh, Operationworld.org. It's an organization that just highlights a lot of unreached people groups and has prayer requests and and, um, what's going on with the gospel. Maybe look at that website and start praying for the people groups of the world. IMB.org. That's an international mission board. You know, just look at those websites. On a daily basis, let this provoke you to action, reminding us what we need to do. Okay, so we need to, you know... See, we need to feel, but we also eventually need to get around to speaking, right? People ain't going to be saved unless they hear about Christ. So sooner or later, we got to open up our mouths, right? Okay, so when we speak, let's start in the meeting house and with people of Christian heritage. Notice what happens in uh, verse 17. So he was reasoning in the synagogue with the Jews and with the God-fearing Gentiles. If you notice in Thessalonica and Berea and now in Athens, what is the first thing that Paul does? He goes to the synagogue. Why? Because there's a common basis there. He doesn't have to do a lot of pre-evangelism. He, they already know about the Old Testament scriptures. They already know about the promised Messiah. So he's able to come to them, and it's almost like easy pickings, right? Hey, Jesus is the Jewish Messiah, and so he builds his base from there. And we ought to do the same thing. Let's make a couple assumptions about the people in this room. First is this. Not everybody in this room is probably saved. Just because you come to church doesn't mean you're saved. Doesn't mean you're a Christian. So we need to make the assumption that there are some people maybe in this room that don't quite have a relationship with Christ yet. Maybe they know God, maybe they've heard about God, maybe they know that Jesus Christ died on the cross for their sins, but they don't quite know how it all works. I was that way for 12 years, so finally I, I found out about the grace of God. So in our worship services, in our life connection groups, in our children's ministry, in our youth ministry, in our college ministries, always present the gospel. That way, if someone's there They can receive Christ. But let's also make another assumption. If someone's in this room today, it's probably because God is drawing them to be here. God is working in their life. I know in in my work as a chaplain, one of the um, groups I have success with is, is, is actually Catholics. 
They've never renounced the, the Council of Trent. They, they have declared salvation by faith alone in Christ alone heresy. But most Catholics don't know that. And so when I'm talking to them at the end of life, I don't go around attacking the fruit of Catholicism. I just say, hey, I think it's great that you believe in God. I think it's great that you believe that Jesus died on the cross. Do you know beyond a shadow of a doubt that you're going to go to heaven? They're like, well, no. I was like, well, hey, do you want to know beyond a shadow of a doubt? You want to know how you can have eternal life? They're like, yeah. And, and, And they're already open to this. So when we have those friends and those neighbors who already have a Christian background, even if it may be a works righteousness, you don't have to reset the foundation a lot. So start with the people in the meeting house and those of, I guess, Christendom or Christian heritage. Next, go and be a missionary in the marketplace. Verse 17. And in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be present. So Paul went from the synagogue to the marketplace. He just didn't talk about God in the faith buildings. He went outside to where the people were. In Athens, this would be the Agora. This is where the artisans were. This is where people did art and did music and the people hung out and they did business deals. Paul went to where the people were and he started telling people about Jesus. We talk about missionaries, right? Missionaries are not just people who go overseas. Who are missionaries? You are. If you know Christ, you're a missionary. And where's your workplace? Where's your marketplace? Where you work, where you live, where you go to school, where you play. It's great to minister to people in here, but there are more people out there than there are in here. We need to go to them. You are Christ's ambassador at your place of business. You know who the greatest missionaries probably in our society are? Students. You need to pray for our students. It said that 80% of people come to know Christ before the age of 18. Our students are missionaries at their school, and they need to view themselves as that. They have an opportunity to share Christ with their friends. If you're on the ball field, remember, you represent Christ, whether you're a player or if, uh, you know, you're a fan. Don't be one of them parents that fusses at the other team or fusses at referees or umpires. Remember, you represent Christ. When you go to, rep- when, when you go to a restaurant, you represent Christ. They're going to mess up your order eventually, right? You can be a jerk about it or you can be gracious about it. But you represent Jesus Christ. When you're in the workplace, maybe there'll be somebody who's, who's having a bad day. That's your opportunity to say, you know what? I noticed you, you seem down. Can I pray with you about something? Let me tell you what's provided hope to my life. Met a lady the other day, and she was part of one of these uh, uh, groups that was very much works righteousness. She has some ladies in her neighborhood invite her to a Bible study, and she found out about Jesus Christ as her Savior and accepted Christ through this neighborhood Bible study. So go and be a missionary in the marketplace. But also, discuss God's truth with intellectuals, verses 18 to 22. Two or so. And also some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers were conversing with him. And some were saying, what would this idle babbler wish to say? Others, he seems to be a proclaimer of strange deities because he was preaching Jesus and the resurrection. And they took him and brought him to the Areopagus, saying, may we know what this is new teaching which you are proclaiming. For you're bringing some strange things to our ears, and we want to know, therefore, what they mean. 
Now, all the Athenians and strangers visiting there used to spend their time in nothing more than telling or hearing something new. And so Paul stood in the midst of the Areopagus and said, and then we'll talk about his uh, sermon in a little bit here. But one of the things that Paul does is he engaged the intellectuals of his days. By the, this time in Athens, a lot of folks quit believing in the old idols. They're just like, this is just ridiculous. I mean, you can't make a god. And they knew the gods hadn't come through. I mean, some still believed in, in the old pagan idols. But there were philosophers, um, a guy named Epicurus, that, that said, eh, those gods, I don't know they exist. Or if they do, they don't care about us. They're distant. You know, they're... They thought they were materialist. You live, you die. There is no resurrection. You just live, die. So might as well eat, drink, and be merry for tomorrow. You die. They were very much like our secular humanist of today who believed, who believed that there is no supernatural. Boy, that's a depressing way to live life. Um, then there were uh, the Stoics. The Stoics were followers of a guy named Zeno. And Zeno... He was more of a pantheist, that everything's God, but it wasn't a personal God. It was more of like an impersonal, rational force. And there was a constant cycle. And, um, you know, there was a spark, and then it would fade. And there was another spark again, and then it would fade. Uh, and so since you really didn't have any control of this, and history wasn't really going anywhere, and you couldn't do anything about it, all you could really do was kind of grin and bear it. Don't get emotional about everything. And that too didn't really offer a lot of hope. But Paul engages these people in the marketplace. They ask questions. Guys, we need to engage the intellectuals of our day. Thank God for homeschool. Thank God for Christian schools. Thank God for CSU. But also thank God for public schools and public universities and Christians that go there to bring the truth of Christ into those places. Far too often Christians have withdrawn and not engaged some of the intellectuals of our day. And I realize it can be scary. What if they ask me a question I don't know about? Then go find the answer. Go brush up on apologetics if you have to. Ravi Zacharias or Josh McDowell or C.S. Lewis or whoever you have to do. Go ask a pastor. But you know, these people, they know a lot. They're super impressive people. But they also know a lot that's just not so. I have a couple family members and they're professors at the Ivy League. They've written books. They're super impressive. But I know my uncle, when he goes to a funeral, he loses it because he doesn't believe in the afterlife. He is utterly despondent. I have hope. He doesn't. My aunt, after years of being a women's studies professor, and she, she, she's just trying to like figure out toward the tail end of her life what it all means. And she's still searching. So have a dialogue with folks. I can remember when I was at Carolina, I had a guy call me. His name was Keith. It was about 2 o'clock in the morning. And he was drunk. Drunk as a skunk. He says, hey, I saw you pray in front of your food, you know, at the cafeteria. Are you a Christian? I was like, yeah. You know, it was 2 o'clock in the morning. And um, he said, tell me about being a Christian. And so I, I, I told him. He did not accept Christ at 2 o'clock in the morning drunk. But we ended up meeting, and he had some legitimate questions. And I never led him to faith in Christ, but he did come to faith in Christ. And we need to be willing to have dialogue with the intellectuals of our day. So Paul goes to the Areopagus. That is a hill outside um, 
it was called the, uh, the Hill of Ares, which was the uh, Greek god of war. Sometimes you've heard it as Mars Hill. That would be the Roman name for the same Greek god. And they would meet there and have discussions and debate. And so Paul has been invited to speak at this very place. Now, what's interesting about this very place, when it was dedicated years before, they had a play. And in this play, there was a line in the play. When men die and spill their blood, there is no resurrection. Now, a few hundred years later, Paul is standing in this group and he's telling them what they need to hear. We need to be bold because we are showing the unsaved what they need. Don't be afraid to share Christ. Will everybody accept it? No. But be bold because you're telling people what they need in life. You know, kids don't always need medicine, but you give it to them, right? A relationship with Christ is the medicine that people need for healing for their lives. And so Paul says several things about God. Verse 22, Paul stood in the midst of the Areopagus and said, Men of Athens, I observe that you're very religious in all respects. So he makes common ground. He says, hey, look, I get it. You're searching for something, and that's great. And then he says in verse 23, While I was passing through and examining the objects of your worship, I also found an altar with this inscription to an unknown God. What therefore you worship in ignorance, I proclaim to you. Okay, now let's back up a little bit here. Okay, a few hundred years before, there was this big plague in Athens and all over Greece. And people were dying right and left. And the people were becoming afraid, right? And so they started sacrificing these false gods, these false idols. And the plague was not averted. And so they're wondering, what's going on? Or we made the gods mad. How is this plague going to end? So what uh, this guy Epitomes did, he was a poet. He said, I got an idea. Let's get some sheep uh, and, and uh, uh, starve them. And maybe they'll go to grass. But if they lie down in front of a, a, a temple, we'll sacrifice uh, the sheep in front of that temple. And if they lie down in the middle of nowhere, maybe there's a God we don't know about. We'll build a statue to that God and uh, the unknown God. And that's what we'll do. And so these sheep came and they just laid down in the middle of nowhere. And so they sacrificed in front of a temple that they just made. And it was the temple to the unknown God. And Epitomes speculated a few hundred years before Paul shows up on the scene here that maybe this unknown God is the true God, that this unknown God is more powerful than the other gods because the plague was averted. And with that background, Paul shares this story. And he says several things about God. Verse 24, he reminds them that God is creator. The God who made the world and all the things in it, since he is Lord of heaven and earth, does not dwell in temples made with hands. He's saying, guys, you don't get it. You can't create God and make a little idol or build a temple. God created you. Some God that you create isn't powerful, but the God who created you is. So you have a powerful God that can solve your problems. Verse 25, he reminds the people of Athens that uh, um, God he, he sustains life. Neither is he served by human hands as though he needed anything since he himself gives to all life and breath and all things. Yes, God is powerful and creator, but yes, God also is personal. He gives you life and breath. He sustains you. He gives you what you need. And then in verse 26, he reminds them that 
God is the father of all the nations. And he made from one nation of mankind to live on the face of the earth, having determined their appointed times and boundaries of their habitation. The Stoics would have believed that history was an endless cycle and it wasn't going anywhere. But Paul says, no, God is in charge of history. History is going somewhere. He's in charge of the rise and the fall of the nations. And by the way, the Athenians, they thought they were better than other races. They thought they were like a supernatural race. Paul says, "Uh uh-uh. All people come from one man. All the races, all people created in the image of God and are fearfully and wonderfully made. And then, in verse 27, he reminds them that God is knowable. Because remember, the Stoics and even the Epicureans didn't think that God cared about them, that he wasn't even knowable. But in verse 27, it says, And that they should seek God, if perhaps they might grope for him and find him, though he is not far from each one of us. Okay, think about Homer's Odyssey. I don't know if you ever studied that in school. But anyway, there's a story of Odysseus, right? And uh, the Athenians would have known the story. Cyclops is in a cave, and Odysseus is trying to get out of the cave. And so what Odysseus does is he gets Cyclops drunk, and then he blinds him with a stake. But Cyclops gets up, and he's flailing around. And Odysseus is trying to stay away from Cyclops as he's doing this number who's blind. Now Odysseus is trying to get away, but Paul is saying, you may be spiritually blind doing this, trying to find what brings ultimate hope and peace and meaning in life, but God's not hiding from you. God wants to be found. God took the initiative to send his son Jesus Christ to die on the cross for our sins. He sends the Holy Spirit to convict us of our sin. God wants to be found. He's knowable. He's touchable. And then he reminds us that God is the father of all of humanity. Verses uh, 28 and 29, for in him we live and move and exist. And even some of your own poets have said, for we are also his offspring. In verse 28, Paul quotes a couple of um, Athenian uh, poets. Uh, one is Epinomies and the other is Aratus, saying even they recognize that we're God's offspring. Being then the offspring of God, verse 29, we ought not to think that the divine nature is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and the thought of man. He's saying, don't you get it? That if God is your father, if God created you, and if you are God's child, God wants to have a relationship with you. He wants to know you. God is not an idol that you create. God is the creator who designed you, who you can only find satisfaction in him. And then in verses 30 and 31, he reminds And tells the people in Athens that God is judge and the rescuer of humanity. Verse 30, therefore, or verse 30, yes. Therefore, having overlooked the times of ignorance, God is now declaring to men that all everywhere should repent. Because he has fixed a day in which he will judge the world in righteousness through a man whom he has appointed, having furnished proof to all men by raising him from the dead. Paul says, look, guys, history's going somewhere. You may have been ignorant in the past, Athenians, but now you know about the true God. 
You have a responsibility to repent, to turn away from worshiping false idols. Turn away from thinking that God is distant and doesn't care about you. You need to turn to the Savior that died on the cross for your sins and rose again from the grave. That's why you should believe in Jesus. He rose again from the grave. He's the risen Savior. That's why I believe in Christ. Christianity uh, could have been stamped out if the Romans would have produced the dead body of Jesus. The dead body of Jesus, they couldn't do it. Uh, the Jews wanted to stamp out Christianity. They could have done it by producing the dead body of Jesus. They, they, they couldn't do it because Jesus is alive. He appeared to Paul. He appeared to the disciples. He changed their lives. He changes our lives. We serve a risen Savior. And he tells the Athenians, repent and believe in this risen Savior for salvation. And so if you're a believer in Jesus Christ already, here's the applications for you. It's very simple. See the lost. Feel, be provoked to the point of action, but then tell them how they can be saved. Tell them about the resurrected Messiah. But if you're in here today and you don't know beyond a shadow of a doubt that you have eternal life, today is the day of salvation for you. Today is the day that you need to turn away from thinking that God is distant. Today is the day that you need to turn away from thinking that God doesn't care about you. Today is the day that you need to turn away from thinking that somehow you can be saved by good works and religion. Today is the day to trust the resurrected Messiah. Let's look at the response of the people. Verses 32 to 34. Now when they heard the resurrection of the dead, some began to sneer. But others said, we shall hear you again concerning this. So Paul went out of their midst. So there were a couple groups to start off with. Some just made fun of Paul and his message. Others said, eh, I don't know. And they delayed it. But then there's another group. And this is the group I pray that you will be in this morning if you don't know Christ. Some men joined him and believed, among whom were Dionysus the Arapagite, a woman named Demarius, and others with them. Eusebius records that Dionysus became the pastor of the church at Athens eventually. He was a member of the elite. They believed in the resurrected Messiah. They were saved to eternal life. So maybe you're out there this morning, and you like God. You think he's pretty cool. You want to be right with him. You just didn't really know how. That maybe you think, I just need to do a little bit more good than bad. Hey, look. God is holy, holy, holy. He is perfect. And he says, you, we shall be holy. Or in, in, in 1 Peter 1, 17, you shall be holy for I am holy. God's standard for us is perfection. None of us are perfect for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. God's up here. Some of us are here. Some of us are here. None of us meet God's standard. The wages of sin is death. We all deserve to go to hell. And by works of the law, no person will be justified. We need to turn away from this idea that we can be saved by, by good works and by religion. You'll never be good enough. You'll never be religious enough. But God loves you. He's knowable. He sent his son, Jesus Christ, to live a perfect sinless life, to die on the cross for your sins, to pay the price for your sins, and to give you his righteousness. So you need to believe. You need to believe 
that if you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord, believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. With the heart the man believes, resulting in righteousness. With the mouth he confesses, resulting in salvation. If you're out there today and you want to be right with God, let today be the day that you're right with God. We're going to have a hymn of invitation. If you want to accept Christ as your Savior, I invite you to come forward. You can talk to me. There's going to be some people at the crosses. Maybe you're out there today and and you're a believer and you want to dedicate yourself to the mission of Christ. Come forward and pray about that. Whatever God is laying on your heart, please respond to. Dear gracious Heavenly Father, we love you. We praise you. You have given us a message. I pray that we respond accordingly. In Jesus' name, amen.